So here we are, Pismo Beach and all the clams we can eat. Q returns, Roddenberry backs the fuck off, etc. Stardate 41590.5. We dropped off Counselor Troy because we didn't write any lines for her. Uh, they stopped by a mining colony where we're still killing people in manual labor jobs, even without the capitalism to give us a reason to. And there's the damn Q grid right on schedule. I thought we were done with that expensive moving uh, space effect grid, but no such luck. Q shows up, the normal glowing ball with the top half of three snakes just floating and hissing right there on the bridge. Just another star date on the Enterprise. This is Re-Engage, the podcast where a very Gen X-ish panel of performers and writer types who love TNG when it first aired and think it's worth a conscious rewatch now that our ages, if not our brands, would tend to indicate full, lame adulthood. How's everybody doing today? Welcome to the panel. We'll start with Kate Yeager, brilliant improviser, hilarious lady about town. How you doing, Kate? Oh, I'm doing just fine, Eric. Thank you. You just reminded me. I think I've told this. I think I've told the story before about being Tell in the pool again. and being being told by the old man in the pool that I was a good time gal. You just <laughs> made, which again I think means he called me a prostitute. But uh, <laughs> oh, I hope I didn't call you a prostitute. No, right? no, I love it. You know uh, this this same this same older gentleman as well. I was in an injury recovery class for a, a, a bum knee, and so it was me and all the retirees, and I was working on underwater weights. And I had two of them, and the same guy came swam up to me and said, "Ah, oh, you're a double fist gal." And I was like, "He just needs to stop." Because I'm the good wearing... time gal. I'm the double fist gal. I don't know what's happening. I feel like he was wearing a swim fedora. Yes, yes, yes. and he kept saying uh, "skimmery do" and twenty-three. Yes, twenty-three skidoo. It's perfect. Jimmy G is in my upper right hand quadrant. How you doing, Jimmy G? Hey, guys. Hey, I'm doing good. Excited to talk about no matter what planet you're from or how far in the future you are, fishnet stockings are hot. <laughs> this is where the Klingon Empire has brought us to date. This is perfect. Greg Tito. Hello. Hi. I am excited to be here and talk about uh, how the French just get a bad rap in this episode. <laughs> are they the French or are they the French version of Wookalars from uh, Private Eyes starring Tim Conway and Don Knotts? The pig people Wookalars in That's the French I, yes. revolutionary outfits. I think they're more like Wuzzles, but right, not French legionnaires and yeah, yeah. people. It was very hard to Ooh, figure the out. Wuzzles. Yeah, they are kind of like Wuzzles. <laughs> and we have a very special guest to the panel today, the wonderful, amazing Tessa Gratton, uh, writer, brilliant uh, mentor to writers. Um, <laughs> she writes short fiction, speculative fiction of many genres for young adults and adults. And uh, she is my cousin. Hello, Tessa. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be a special guest in particular. Oh, yeah, it's like Extra a special, special agent. You're an FBI guest. <laughs> right. As opposed to those, like, I don't know, what doesn't have special agents? Even Treasury has special agents, right? Even Treasury, we say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking the disco t-shirt. Is that from Star Trek Discovery there? Yes, it is. Uh, 
I was going to say Trek has a, a, a long and storied history in the Grattan family. I, I know, of course, more my father and his son's uh, relationship to the the intellectual property. But uh, Tessa, tell me about your own journey with Trek through the years. Oh, I definitely don't remember exactly when I was first introduced to it because my parents were also watching The Next Generation. When I was so young that it came on past my bedtime. So I didn't originally start until I think season four is when I graduated into being able to stay awake and watch um, Next Gen with my parents. And then I was a huge Deep Space Nine fan. I was um, just the right age to super get into it. And also um, had some of my very first like media queer awakening kind of, oh, this is me, this is me with um, Jadzia Dax. Sure. of her, I mean, the way that she was overtly queer on the show and also the um, Trill in general have such a, uh, like a, a very gender queer society because of how they fold in so many different gender identities into themselves. And so that made a huge impression on me. And for a really long time, I considered myself like a Deep Space Nine girl entirely. Sure. Um, and that was until I saw Star Trek Discovery and I would die for Michael Burnham. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the quick version. I, I love when people express their innermost feelings in song titles. And I would die for Michael Burnham is just <laughs> begging to be put to a melody. Yes. Um, <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. You you came on and right away blew up one of my central uh, topics for for uh, my own approach to our relationship with Star Trek, yourself and me, because you are the relative that I have that is closest in age to me. And yet what you have just said out loud is that we are different generations. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was certainly old enough to watch this uh, from season one. So, um, I mean, that talking point is gone now. So I appreciate (laughs) it. The whole thing is more streamlined. We're ready to go. (laughs) Do you have memories of this episode in particular? I definitely didn't see this until I was re-watching, I think, um, in the early 2000s. Um, my wife and I decided um, to rewatch it because we both had so many great memories of particularly the latter couple of seasons. And so I think they were like reruns on UPN or something like that. And we were in grad school and it was late. And so we just started rewatching from the beginning. And at that point, it did make an impression on me because I was always very interested in Q in general. And so seeing these early episodes with him slash them was very intriguing. Though having rewatched this episode um, this weekend, wow, it's it's rough. (laughs) 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 And it it says something I'm not particularly uh, proud of in myself that I hadn't even looked at that aspect of Q really the 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 gender. Um, That's one of my hyper focuses. 
in my work. So sure. Yeah. I'll always be here to bring up gender. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, at any rate, 1987, uh, to further highlight differences in Tessa and my age, um, <laughs> I have such fond remember, uh, uh, memories of Billy Idol. Uh, and at this point in time, Moni Moni was the number one song in the land. He's been at that. And that, song is like such a wedding stalwart now that like it, it's, it's never gonna not be played i feel like it's one of those things because it's a it's a um a remake right it's a it's a cover of an older like 60s or 70s song right and so it's it hits all the generations right <laughs> and it's 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 got that straight beat that anybody can just literally jump up and down to and you're dancing yeah like as long as you can jump up and down that's the basic rhythm of a human body jumping up and down so go for it it's great everybody can kind of agree on how to dance to that one and what is do you it think, Kate? is it common that everybody has that that part the the spoken part in the middle i know at my school it was the big like hey get laid get fucked get there was something or like get <laughs> like where you cheer in the middle of the hey get laid get fucked get i don't remember it i just remember that it was laid and fucked so that was excited and it, it was probably so just laid fucked laid fucked laid fucked <laughs> probably laid. yeah or it should be uh, but Tessa, do you remember that song? I do remember that song. My mom was a huge Billy Idol fan. And so we had that album playing in the house a lot. Fantastic. <laughs> I think we've established that I am more uh, Tessa's parents' generation uh, than I am hers. <clears throat> and I'm comfortable with that, honestly. They're good people. I'll, I'll be compared to them <laughs> in my pop culture references. I love it. Uh, so other than that, November 23rd, 1987 is what we're talking about. Billy Idol, yes, I'll take it. The Running Man takes over for Fatal Attraction as the number one movie in the United States. Ooh. And 60 Minutes defeats The Cosby Show in the ratings war this week, dealing with multiple stories about Iran-Contra and some death penalty and race issues in the United States. Uh, I'm kind of happy to see that Iran-Contra took over as, as the number one thing people were watching that week. It, it surprises me. Uh, so, yay, uh civic engagement everyone <laughs> how'd that one work out uh, everything's oh, so better great. now right yeah. i think justice was served at the end uh yeah you know. <laughs> and Definitely uh and lasting consequences and america yeah. is not uh you know it, it's grown since then i think i don't uh, recollect what happened <laughs> <laughs> well the attorney general is the same one right now so yes. uh that, that can tell you a lot i assume um well not as in 87 but as uh the end of the Iran Contra. Blah 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 blah. Can we talk uh, about Running Man though? Running yeah. Man yes. is an amazing movie. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about Running Man. And so much like so prescient in terms of its like where we are today with reality TV. And mm -hmm. you know, like we're just we're just that one step away from, you know, watching this very reality of uh, you know, people running for their very lives on television. The Amazing I, Race is basically inspired by The Running Man, right? <laughs> they sure. just need to add a little bit more violence to it. And it's the, <laughs> the Amazing Ninja Warrior race. And then you have The Running Man. Right? Yeah. Shout out uh, to Richard Dawson, though. I mean, he mm -hmm. transcended him as the uh, as uh, the host of Family Feud, right? And yeah. then he yeah. took that and turned it well, evil. Well-known shit, that's a Yeah. That was yeah. a bold move to be Embraced like, you know what? His, 
his real inner personality that dick uh <laughs> was he actually i don't know anything about richard dustin was he uh, a not good person oh i believe he was a very famous misogynist and if Ooh. i was wrong he's dead and no one can take it away from me <laughs> um I, I believe he was in the news multiple times for some very terrible uh attitudes uh actions and okay so then he was just playing himself now i understand yeah yeah uh yeah, I think it's even pretty, pretty out there uh, if you just rewatch him as the host of Family Feud. Like, <laughs> wow. He sure uh, does like to kiss people. He sure does. Um, so, yeah, Richard Dawson, well-known Dick, playing Dick on uh, on film, <laughs> as is the uh, the casting uh, uh, per use. Um I, it's a pet theory that I have. If someone their entire career only pays at plays assholes, you should listen to the casting directors. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't have any evidence of that. So uh, that is what was happening in the pop culture uh, area of the world at this point before Three Men and a Baby took over the entire world for the rest of the year. Um, that movie? Yeah. And now we get to the episode itself. We are talking about Hyde and Q, the... Help me, ninth and tenth, ninth. depending on who <laughs> who is asking, right? The ninth episode of the first season of Star Trek: The Next Generation, written by Maurice Hurley initially, and then there was controversy and conflict with the very nice man Gene Roddenberry, who never fought with anybody. What? Um, <laughs> I'm shocked. <clears throat> shocked. Uh, yes, uh, so much so that Mr. Hurley took his name off the episode and asked to be credited under a pseudonym and uh gene roddenberry was so disappointed in this first uh effort by uh, maurice hurley to write a script that he wouldn't even acknowledge his existence in the hallways um, wow that's ridiculous but, they would pass each other like five or six times in the studio going back and forth and gene roddenberry would just be like no i'm not going to talk to you that's yep. messed up avert his gaze also is this, this is the third third yeah Oh my God! Yes, Chris. So I was going to say this is the third time we've had somebody ch use a pseudonym on an episode, and it is only episode nine. That might be a symptom. Ow. <laughs> Tessa, have you worked? Have you worked for people who are editors or someone above you who have uh, taken your work and changed it so thoroughly and and given you so little say in the process? Uh, they don't get to do that. <laughs> um, of the way that my contracts work. And I have a very good agent. And the only thing that I have complete control over is the text itself, the text of the book. They can do whatever they want with like the cover and the marketing and all that kind of stuff. But the actual words, um, we have to come to an agreement about, or it basically negates the contract. That's so interesting. And, and does that uh, apply basically across platforms and um, uh, genres that you're writing? Like, is that kind of industry standard for you, no matter what you're working it, on? Industry standard for a, um, like a, a writer driven project. There is a lot of IP and um, like book packager kind of things where either the publisher or an outside packaging company will say, here's our idea. And then they hire a writer to do it. And so those contracts are always a lot more um, 
a lot more complicated and there's less power given to the writer. And I mean, like if you're writing, you know, if you're writing for Star Wars, then you basically have no control whatsoever. And um, they can keep having you rewrite it over and over again until it is what they want it to be like that kind of thing. So I've just only, I've rarely worked in that kind of packaging situation or collaboratively. Uh, with, you know, a, a public collaboratively with a publisher as opposed to another writer who's just my friend and we're writing something together. <laughs> sure. So, well, you're uh, touching on, I think, one of the reasons that the conflict uh, went so poorly in this one is that uh, Mr. Hurley had been writing uh, in such a way that he was affecting the world building of Star Trek, which oh. Roddenberry, of course, was very protective of. He had written a whole backstory for the Q that hadn't been approved, I guess. And a lot of that is what was taken out and replaced by uh, Roddenberry. But the, the the method in which it was done <laughs> was surely terrible. Yeah. But I wanted hmm. to talk to you about Star, Star Trek in particular and this episode, if, if you had any thoughts, with the world building aspect of it. I know that's something that's very important to you and and something that i'm struck by when i read your work is is thank you the uh, complexity of of the world that you've built while also not distracting the reader from why it's pertinent to what's going on in their own lives you know it's it's such a fine line and i wonder if anything in this episode struck you the the Q in particular are a real world building problem because anytime you introduce an element that is supposedly limitless, you basically are screwing any world building whatsoever because anything can change. Like if a Q can do literally anything, then nothing matters anymore. And so um, this is, you know, it's a real risky move to have this kind of character. And I admire it when it comes to the pilot because they just like dove straight into, here's a new Star Trek and we're gonna introduce like absolute chaos by introducing the Q. And so in this episode, I do find it interesting that on a certain level, they're playing around with, um, you know, by giving Riker this power by saying, okay, now you human, all of a sudden you have this uh, unlimited power that introduces a, like a world, almost like a world building paradox because either he's human and so will react to the power like a human or he's a Q, like Q says he is and no longer should be limited by things like emotions. And that is sort of what, you know, solves the problem at the end of the day, though it's pretty uh, un unclear, <laughs> <laughs> to me at least, the resolution of this particular episode. But I do think it's a world building thing. You, you have a problem. This is one of the reasons that, you know, I think Q is a very, um, fairy-like character. Like he's basically, the continuum is almost like, you know, here's the, the winter court of the gentry and they are so powerful, they can do whatever they want. And their favorite thing to do is fuck with humans. But with fairies, there are rules like built into whatever culture you find the fairy in, like they can't lie. Well, they just seem to have made no rules for Q whatsoever. Um, and so really on the first time we see a consequence though, that's what I really like about that resolution, even though I agree with you that the plot mm -hmm. is kind of messed up and I don't really get <laughs> why Riker 
makes a complete left turn in the middle of the episode. But the the he this is the first time we see Q get like scared. Uh, and it's from his superiors that shot at the end where he's like, no, screaming. And you're like, oh, that was so interesting to me because then the Q continuum didn't make sense until you're like, oh, wait, but there are some rules. We just don't know what they are yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really sad that there was background to them cut out because I'd really like to know any background whatsoever. They said that initially the script called to define a little bit of the Q society and that there are hundreds of thousands of beings in in the society that is seen over by the Q, but there are only three members of the Q continuum. Uh, and that was all gone, <laughs> clearly. And I don't think it, any of it ever came back in terms of uh, any of the rest of canon. Uh, w- uh, there is apparently something that was uh, explained in the novelization uh, after this, which was that the rest of the queue sent our queue to offer membership to Picard. And when he got here, he decided to change it to Riker. Hmm. Um, and so that's apparently canon, uh, which I find super interesting. Like uh, I, I was actually specifically going to ask you about that, Tessa, the, the problems for a, a writer being assigned a limitless character and how you immediately have to place limits on it uh, or, or what are you going to do? So then you have this interesting choice where, you know, he's placing self limits. It's a bet. He's surely going to honor mm-hmm. it. Right. At, at least the writer then didn't go so far as to believe that, that this limitless character is actually going to hold itself to a, a bet of honor. If, <laughs> you know, if, if, we're going to have him actually try and teach us a lesson about human behavior. Uh, they cannot hold themselves <laughs> to like the best of human stuff right off the bat. So of course he doesn't do that. But like Greg says, they drag him back and there is consequence after all. Um, but of course we're going to see Q again, right? Isn't that again, mm-hmm. how, how we're supposed to interpret this uh, in a serial context? Yeah. And we get a little bit in, subsequent episodes that uh, kind of define those those rules a little bit more which is really fascinating but i i love that this is all framed as a game you know like that that this is uh some tests of metal and then we get to see uh you know how Riker kind of kind of does in that i like that framing maybe because i'm a gamer myself but it really kind of <laughs> understands it Sure. And it's it's a game where one side gets to make up all the rules and decide whether or not to hold themselves to it. And they at least put that out there in the front as well. This is an unfair game, he says, and admits right away. Uh, so that's nice to those mystery lovers of us that want to know at least some modicum of the rules. So knowing that he will not hold himself to the rules is a helpful thing uh, for those of us watching. Uh, Kate, what did, what did you think right off the bat of being reintroduced to Q? Well, I noticed right away that we dropped Troy off uh, because, <laughs> but it means that we face this challenge for the first time without mm-hmm. the emotional support and without the sort of conscience that that she has provided throughout. And so we're faced with this uh, competition where she would be incredibly helpful. And especially with Riker being the one who is affected the most, it's such an interesting choice because how different would this episode have been had Deanna still been around and be able to 
to counteract Riker or, or challenge him um, with what he was doing. And what present would he have given her? What? Oh my gosh. I think it would have been kisses, but I'm not sure. <laughs> We're all pro Will and Deanna kissing as much as possible, I think. I think, I think this be is something the panel be like, here, I know you've always wanted to have socks that kept you warm. Uh, so here you go. <laughs> but this episode too, just watching John Delancey and Patrick Stewart square off and, and Shakespeare off. Okay. I'm oh in like for forever and a day, like just those two, you know, I know that, that Riker is the, is the sort of main focus of Q in this episode, but those brief moments where they square off um, Jean-Luc and, and Q are just, no no line is wasted everything has a tactic and a meaning and a specificity and they just they chew their way through that language and it's so ugh, it's gorgeous absolutely agreed and of course another reason i wanted tessa to be a part of this is that she uh, shares a passion for shakespeare in addition to the her other interests and has written several books in shakespeare's shared uh universe uh Ooh. that she has taken uh uh and given her own uh point of view and improvements upon uh which is wonderful so what did, what did you think about the uh the reintroduction of some of uh, sci-fi's favorite shakespearean lines that was my favorite part of the whole episode, that scene in, I think it was in the ready room mm -hmm. um, when they were going back and forth about that. I really liked it. I really, really loved Picard's like really earnest rendition of the, what a piece of work is man. Like yeah. it's just so pure and just so wrong. <laughs> but, like he's just, that's, that's who he is and that's what, that's like what his point is mm -hmm. always and like what he comes back to in a lot of ways. And so I really appreciated that from him. And I like one of my favorite things about Picard as a character is that he's not uh, afraid or embarrassed to say, you know, Hamlet might have been being ironic, but I'm earnest when I give this speech. I believe this. And I believe that we as a species will continue to become closer to gods. And I think that is what makes him such a great character in the long run, not just for the seven series or um, <laughs> uh, seasons, but for the the new show too. Like they still engage with that with his character. And so I loved that whole scene, not just because it was the two of them reciting Shakespeare, which I also would listen to um, for the whole 42 minutes, gladly. I, I agree with all of that wholeheartedly. I had such joy watching John Delancey in this, and I, I stumbled upon a casting story where uh, when the director was given this, it's also this director's uh, premiere episode uh, and certainly his first time using Q. So he had gone back and watched the original episode so that he could get on the same page with John Delancey and make sure that he could guide John Delancey back to the performance that he gave earlier, months before. And it, it hadn't occurred to me that, of course, that's very common because we don't get footage of our work to take home and, and keep as kind of a reference, <laughs> you know? So like if we gave a certain performance at an audition and then we shoot six weeks later, we haven't seen what we did in that audition room in those six weeks. So it might not be anything like what we had 
meant to do at that point. So then you got to get on the same page again. But they said when he showed up, it was exactly dialed in. It was perfect. It was exactly the same. And I think the writers gave him such a gift when they said that um, when they had Patrick Stewart say that Riker or that Q had been obsessed with Riker since Farpoint. Hmm. And John Delancey, I think, reads lines like that because, I mean, it's always true that what other characters say about your character when you're not in the room is the most useful advice in the world in terms of building your character. And I think he looked at that and then had the had Q dialed back in immediately. Like, this is a, a, a almost anti-data. This is a guy who who like Tessa says, doesn't have emotions the way we do, is trying to figure out what humans are, sees all the breadth of humanity and fixates on the alpha male, uh, you know, woman loving, uh, men want to be him, women want to be with him type. And, you know, that classic John Wayne type with more progressive attitude in some areas. <laughs> and... <laughs> he he gravitates to that in the same way that data is clearly gravitates towards the picard type the the uh striving for good uh as part of the human experience which is not really what q is interested in at all and i've really loved watching john delancey play riker on that alien world against riker and only the two of them were there together you know the same tall build which you don't notice about Delancey until now because he's been sitting down and they fill out the uniform the same way he strikes the same tone they uses the same rhythms all the way through as Jonathan Frakes does and I'm blown away sorry that's my monologue what do you think Jimmy I know I forgot <laughs> you're talking for so long I totally forgot I was. I was. I'll cut out three quarters of it but you yeah. just cued us man <laughs> um, the one thing about the, the the scene between the Shakespeare off in the ready room, um, there is one line. I, I don't remember what play it's from, but the the last two words are no more uh, that Delancey says. And, and I think he was off beater because he ends it with a trochee instead of an I am. So I wasn't as struck with like when they were doing it like, oh, you you're probably phonetically learning these lines, weren't you, John? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he decided uh, to throw the trophy in because it may had have more decided, of an impact for know, him. I don't give uh, Discord that much credit. What's a trophy? <laughs> That's the, the foot that is it's, emphasis and then unemphasis. It's what you like don't want to be punched in. Otherwise, you can't breathe. <laughs> My God. Like Eric or Tessa or Jimmy. Those are trochies. Got it. It's the, yeah. it's the, yeah, the meter. Gregory is an anapest. Uh, I have a question for Jimmy because I was watching this and we get to mm, what I think I are some <laughs> actual emotional moments from Tasha Yar. There are oh. now mostly it's when she's off camera, but they're like, they're, they're not focusing on her on screen, but I hear real emotion in her voice and then they go to her and it all falls apart. But there was a moment, Jimmy, and I know how fascinated you are in the acting I, uh, styles. I disagree. I did, <laughs> I did not think it was very well done. And I'll tell you, I was really preoccupied. I don't know if it's my television, but I felt like they did something weird with Tasha's makeup in this episode. And she had this weird sort of pallidness right in the middle of her face. It was uh, 
it, it was weird. And then later in the episode, I was like, oh, my, I think they did the same thing. The right girl all of a sudden is the bottom half of his face is this orange Trumpian look to him. Uh, it, <laughs> so it might be time for a new TV, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been lobbying for one for a while now, and I, I think I, <laughs> I might be say, on the near winning end of it. <laughs> There are times and sets where uh, actors are not trusted to convey the full breadth of emotion that they, the script might ask of them. And sometimes designers try to help a little bit and uh, it, it ends up being less helpful than they think. Uh, but I don't know that that's the case this time, Jimmy. I are you suggesting they're sad makeup? Like she's not good enough. I'm this. suggesting Put her that in the sad people, makeup. <laughs> I'm suggesting that some people think there is sad makeup. Definitely. So are she we going to talk about so let's put uh, some blush on her cheeks? I had one thrilling moment and Hit I knew it, it wouldn't last. When a uh, little. Don't you dare. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when we thought we would lose our young prodigy for no. a half second. How dare there. you? How dare you? I mean, what did he think he was going to do? Wait a minute. I'll save Worf. <laughs> but alas, a shock. it's a strangely choreographed moment because you don't have that kind of like ramping up of tension. It just all of a sudden becomes like, oh, two dead cast two members dead. like in, in the in, you know, 10 seconds. I don't think it was, uh, you know, the, the kind of dread. It didn't get like, you know, enough and it didn't feel real at all. No. But then right. immediately Riker gets so uh, angry uh, and does his little yeah. Damn it all! Damn it all! <laughs> I, I do like the and hand throw is, up in the air is like his way to cast That's spells. the movement for everybody out. Yeah. That's the so, Q movement. Now we know a little bit of sign language from the Q continuum. Yeah. Out. Out. And this so. is sort of their power move. Like just you can transport anybody with just the back Jimmy, of your hand. If you, Jimmy believes that people on the podcast uh, can see him when he lifts the back <laughs> oh, of his right. hand uh, to the I'm camera. I'm performing um, to the audience, uh, which is you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. And we loved it, Jimmy. It was, um, I crushed it, audience. But I, what do you, you think, Tessa? If you, had, if you had two minutes of commercials to take out and put back in some sort of plot, would you have uh, lengthened the time between Worf and Wesley's demises? <laughs> no, that's not what I would have done with it. I would have um, given Riker a little bit more, I don't know, uh, a time and the end when he's like, I will give you all gifts. You get this and you get this. And, you know, his Oprah moment. And then <laughs> all of a sudden he's, he's just like, oh, I'm so ashamed. And I think that was like a, a lot of it wasn't working for me in general, though. Right. I have to say I really, really liked um, apparently bisexual horn dog Jordy LaForge, who uh, expressed attattraction to adult Wesley Tasha, and the yeah. Klingons. Yep. So he was just like, wow, this is where I'm at. I am into this. It's a thirsty <laughs> crew. Yeah. And Jordy, Jordy also has superpowers, uh, which we don't talk about often enough. It's not just that he sees more than us. It's not just that he has X-ray vision and uh, heat vision and uh, you know, ultra low frequency vision and all of these things. He can also he has like 
super telescopic vision and can <laughs> see the freckles on Worf's nose if he had them from like a mile and a half away. The like third if, ridge? If they can't see <laughs> that he's on the third ridge, then that shit's a long way away because this is, we can see the air quality. It's not like, you know, it's Los Angeles from the 70s. Like you can see a distance. Yeah. Um, so that that shut down conversation. And yet, well, but and yet he's he can't see that that uh, that that Will Wheaton would grow into that man. <laughs> that, that is the least convincing <laughs> it transition. Was wonderful too, what they did and with then, his voice. They and made then his they voice give the sound. voice. Say it, Kate. Well, I think it uh, it sounded like it was Will's voice to me. Yeah. That it was yes. just overdubbed, and this poor actor, um, <laughs> just awkward in that. Just body, body and 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 just wearing the he does not wear the uniform as well as will i will say that um but uh it's just that awkwardness of i'm mama mama are you proud of me now mama i don't know it's just... <laughs> and i feel like they did something either in the direction of the actor will wheaton or in the sound studio but they made the voice sound like i don't know fatter because he's i don't know stronger or something like it <laughs> if you listen to the wesley voice it's not the same high pitch no they've like they, lowered the pitch either by saying hey wesley ooh. you're old now or <laughs> or by doing it digitally or non-digitally at the time you know it's fascinating and and you're right one of the highlights of the entire series uh, not to mention the highlight of Picard naming Q as nothing but a flim flam man. Yes. And then Worf, and man. then Worf goes flim flam. <laughs> <laughs> right. hey, Worf has got the best non dialogue moment in this too, when he just goes, <laughs> like he's well, like nerds, like he's just angry. <laughs> oh yes, ogre. He also pours out the the drink in such a great oh. fu manner that oh, I'm just yeah. like, yes, With my favorite. Well Unbroken done. eye contact and just yeah. throws that fucking cup away. It is. It now. is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. In contrast to Data's much, much more genteel refusal to drink. Yes, in a, in a much more scientific, uh, perhaps I don't need this, or perhaps it's poisoned. I wasn't sure which. <laughs> and then uh, Worf's like, no, this shit is fucking poisoned. I know it. It was great. Well, I noticed that uh, Riker has, or that, that Jonathan Frakes has to have one of the most terrifying moments that any actor has, which is starting a scene with laughter yes. out of nowhere. <laughs> and I just, I just thought that is, you, you dread that scene going in because you know you have to make something out of nothing and bring that i have i have laughing on my special skills on my resume because i i do a lot of stage laughs and getting asked to produce that laugh uh in auditions is just terrifying i can do it but it's just yeah will will you will you do a stage laugh for me (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) <laughs> so good. Uh, we learned we learned in grad school a, a foolproof method to produce actual laughter or uh, sobbing tears in your body just through breathing and not dealing with any sort of emotion or any other thing other than just what comes out from breathing so you don't think about traumatic things anything like that and it's the best thing i ever learned um but i'm not sure jonathan frakes ever learned it <laughs> and it's okay. It's the hardest thing, like you say. But I, but I do, 
I like Riker so much that I want to forgive him. So oh, I, sure. I think inside like, oh, he's just taunting Q. He just wants Q to show up. Mm. So he's just taunting him with this fake laugh. Oh, that was and good. I'm like, great. Him the totally the works. Totally works. Cool. That's what Riker did. <laughs> what do you think, Jimmy? I forgot. um you know what i was fixated on uh was the um i don't know if it's the first time q shows up in this episode uh but there's a scene where Worf jumps over the panel yes and unholsters his phaser it was like yet again Worf upstaging the security (laughs) chief (laughs) tasha yar and like you know, if it ever comes up, I just want you to see the skills I could bring to the table as head of security. Just if in case. Have, if you ever want to hyphenate the position. Exactly. He's dressing for the job he wants. Right. right. Yes. The, oh, uh, and then what is it? He says uh, macro head with a micro brain, uh, which is quite nice. I, I really enjoy that one. But again, you needed someone like John Delancey to be able to get away with it. And we touched on a little bit with Tasha in this episode where she starts crying on the bridge and Mm -hmm. ends that sequence, which could have been a touching moment where you're like, all right, this is a, you know, a good captain being uh, uh, supportive of, um, you know, emotions on the bridge and all that stuff. And then fucking Gene Roddenberry, because I know this is probably one of his Uh. lines that he wrote, had to be like, "If if you weren't the captain, we right. could be making out right now. This is and what I'm they like, do to Tasha every single fucking time. They undercut yeah. anytime she has an actual moment of epiphany or revelation or just uh, a connection with someone. They have to sex it up every single time. It I think it's part of what Roddenberry was afraid of in the first place by having a bald captain. Like he was afraid there might be a moment where they think of him as avuncular or uh, paternal and we can't have that he needs to be sex man and it's very strange because they also cast Riker for that and you don't need both even if you need one Mm -hmm. Uh, so you're right the the, the insistence that everybody has to be like that all the time especially for the women is ridiculous but I would also say that part of the ridiculousness of it is that I feel like they didn't tell Picard and uh, Tasha that the scene was going to be long takes because it looked to me like they were acting like they were expecting a cut between several cameras because when it's like that you can't interrupt each other and you need to have a little break in between each line Mm. but the breaks were a little bit long so I feel like they thought there was either going to be a lot of musical help or some cuts in there and the actors were left out to dry but again I want to give actors the benefit of the doubt we'll fix it in post (laughs) yeah well i'm saying they could have like you can cut three or four seconds out of that scene and not have your actors out on an island that long it 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 just seemed a little cruel to me yeah i didn't notice it but you're right there is the dead space in between tasha's uh, you know admittedly awkward dialogue that makes it feel really awkward because you get the moment as an audience to be like wait why did she say that (laughs) Uh, there's no trans transition moments for her and it's it's frustrating I got legitimately like a little embarrassed with the with the Klingon moments, the Klingon sexy times. It was 
too sexy. I like, again, it's one of those other <laughs> moments where I'm like, I don't know how I was allowed to watch this show at the age that I did because <laughs> I mean, oh my God, so sexy <laughs> and upsetting. And then, and then Violet and then, and then turns out he doesn't want sex anymore. And then I don't know what to do with all of these bottle up emotions. <laughs> and they make him say the line, this is sex after he has beat someone right yes it's just awful that is awful stupid and like just yeah embarrassing and cringy uh what who's got something on that (laughs) and then he's got to say after that i have no time for this in my life right now yeah Uh, (laughs) like as if that was what oh is that what he said i thought it was uh i i misunderstood it i thought he was saying something about i don't I don't do that anymore. Like he, he stepped away from that part of his culture or something. No, it's like, I'm not that, concentrating on this. Oh my God. It's <laughs> even worse. Yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Terrible. Everything there's, about there's it, except for the face in it. There's tons of elements of gender uh, discrimination. Yeah. In it. It's, it's fucking it's, awful. It's, <laughs> but it's I mean that, that, you know, I think we know this moving forward. If we didn't know it by now, that's going to be part of every episode that we talk about in this in this series. Like they are they are getting so much better at the issues that were the worst in these series now, mm-hmm. like they were getting so much better at the issues that were the worst in the first series. Then I think removing that that core group of creators has paved the way towards people that really enjoyed the initial series, but also were able to see the big fucking problems with it. For sure. One thing <laughs> I'm monologuing today. Everybody. You were like, no, no, but I think you're right. Like, I mean, we, we know that this first season uh, and part of the second is really the show trying to find its way, right? Like they're trying to, it's right. It's between this old, the old series and Roddenberry's, you know, extreme influence, uh, and where the more utopian vision of um, uh, the 24th century can go. Um, but you're right. Because of that, we get these strange episodes where you're like, ah, oh, that doesn't, this feels like we're, we're serving, you know, three masters and none of them are, are the ones we should be serving, uh, which sucks. But one thing that I've kind of uh, thought about as we're, we're, we're talking through this episode with you all, you know, theater people or storytellers in some way uh, is that the, Hamlet and Shakespeare stuff um, is, uh, I think, a commentary on Q. And, it, and it's, it's a line that Picard has at the end where he's like, what is your obsession with costumes uh, that he has to have all these parts that he plays because he can't play himself. He can't play what the Q really are because I don't know why exactly, because we, we, we uh, have an assumption of what God is or we have an assumption of uh, what this powerful being is. Uh, and I really started to enjoy that comparison. I wish they went into it more. Like they went up, like that, that, that Q is performing for us as he was in Farpoint. Uh, and he's doing so here to prove some type of point. And they, they, they argue about that in the ready room, but it doesn't come to a, like a real satisfying like conclusion or, or, or through line for anybody. Did, did, did anybody kind of think about that? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what it, I think what it comes down to, and we're in agreement, it, it, the thing that we take away from this episode is is the character of Q. You know, what what did you think, Tessa, in terms of um, was this episode kind of doomed from the start to be mediocre because of how they approached it? Or 
or were there fixes that jumped out to you plot or character wise? I think that the core of this episode is reaching toward what is one of my favorite things about Star Trek in general. Um, and they just haven't tipped over into figuring out how to do it yet. The thing that I love is this idealized federation where even when everything is going badly and you know, you're in war or whatever, there are these principles that the federation believes in. And, you know, it, it's like this guiding um, principle <laughs> um, <laughs> to keep trying to make the galaxy better and to bring people together in that same mission. And so in this episode, they haven't flipped over from human exceptionalism into the Federation is what we are evangelizing. And so like this, this episode feels very much like Trek to me because it's this argument between um, Picard and Q about what makes humanity great. Why is Q obsessed with humanity, which he clearly is, very much can't let go of humans and Picard and Riker in particular. And so they go down this, well, humans are just going to be, get better and better. And, you know, we reach for change and growth and all that kind of stuff. And that is like kind of old and boring. And to me, not really what they eventually land on. Um, even later on in Next Generation, um, when they start in introducing themes of like community versus the Borg, for example, like that kind of stuff. So this is really like a messy first step to me in getting to that track that I love where it is making me hope for the future and watching characters struggle to maintain their own kind of hope in what the Federation can be and what people can be, not just humans specifically. Absolutely. How you choose to portray yourself is, is almost as important as how you actually act or, or how you actually are or how you're born or your upbringing and all that. Like, you know, you have some agency in it and, you know, it's, it's something that's being, touched on in discovery now uh, in Star Trek discovery is like, what is it? What does this mean? And I think you're right. It, a lot of it does get to the core of what we all love at Star Trek is that there's something, there's something better in the future and we can just choose and, 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 and make it possible. Yeah. Well, uh, I also think you just has a crush on Riker. So <laughs> is how I think so out. too. I was going to say, I think, I think he does take uh, John Delancey takes Q's obsession with humanity as there is a love there and there is this there is this sort of romantic through line that I think is has more to just do with fascination and with obsession and with you know that 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 kind of um I need to know more I need to reach out I need to and and I and it he takes it I think to that 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 scene of them on the planet is very intimate and very beautiful like mm -hmm. it's it's just a really there's moments where the two of them are just you know a forehead apart from each other having this conversation and it's uh for one thing it's just nice to see that intimacy uh on screen but uh it's fascinating um when you look at it through through q and 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 their fascination with humanity um 
Yeah, even though this scene is really just an exposition dump in a way, it is just being like, here's how the Q continuum works. But you're <laughs> right, they have that 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 kind of intimacy. And then you see that that hopefulness from Riker that is, wait, how how amazing do we get? Can you tell me how amazing humans get in the future? Is it can you see it? Is it is it good? And I think that's a little bit what seduces him into being like, well, or maybe Q and these powers are not such a terrible thing. Yeah, I I think how they how they approach the 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 human gaining Q's powers is is an interesting thing that we didn't touch on much. Um, I I know that if I were given it, I wouldn't react with the the way Riker did either at first or at last. I certainly would you save that kid? Up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it's one kid. Like it's in a moment like that, it's not a hypothetical anymore. Uh, there's there's no. Like I wouldn't be changing the past. I'd make the kid alive right now. I don't believe in a soul. So like, yeah, that's, that's what I would do if I had the capability of doing it. I, you know, me. Yeah. <laughs> but that's also why I, I don't want the powers because I have been uh, told my whole life that it would go poorly. And that's a lesson that I have uh, actually synthesized into my soul. I do not want supreme power of anything. You should um, just give us all gifts and then you'll understand why it's, why it's not. <laughs> yes. That's all you have to do, right? But I mean, we also, you know, we, don't, we didn't touch on the, the, the ableist issues around uh, Jordy getting his sight. Uh, yeah. his human sight and ultimately refusing it yeah but and then, and then it's maybe this episode and how he reacts to and refuses the 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 cure that mm -hmm. made me very concerned with uh how it's portrayed in the naked now when he has this monologue and that thing where he's talking about like oh I, if i wish i could see and i'm like i don't right i don't think they knew the character yet because that's not that's not how i picture jordy you know after you know, seven seasons and, and all that we know about Jordy. And I, th and I think this episode really kind of hammer hammers at home. They're like, no, he is this character who has um, less of less, a, a different sight than everyone else, but it's also part of him and he wouldn't just give it up on a whim. Right. Well, it, and it wasn't, uh, I don't feel like it was a writing device, right? It, yeah. I don't know that they thought about it in any grand gesture. It was, four characters are given something that they turn down simply for one. So Q can lose. And two, we don't want to earn it that way. I want my Certainly. sight, but I want it to come not from somebody just clicking their fingers and being an asshole. I want my sight to come back in a, in a different way. Like I, I don't want to give uh, Gene Rodberry anybody that much credit that they were really thinking about blind people or no. doing anything, well, but making a, a device for their show. I mean, it's, Ultimately, that's what I'm kind of trying to clumsily <laughs> say is that th it wasn't oh, <laughs> the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the outreach that they thought it was at the time as middle-aged straight white dudes in the late 80s uh, who weren't as progressive as they thought they were. Um, uh, just like I assume myself, I'm not as progressive as I think I am right now. Uh, so thank you to my nephews and their kids over the uh, intervening years for continuing to teach me. You always got to strive. Um, That's the whole thing. Uh, let's go around the horn. What are what are your closing thoughts, Jimmy? Uh, it was a fairly fun episode. Not one of the the better ones, but still um, not s completely fraught with issues. Although the the sex scene is one of those that goes up on the board of uh, <laughs> you obviously. <laughs> Even though you're talking about a perfect future, you were living in a very tainted present when you wrote this. Yeah. Absolutely. Greg? I There was a couple of really fun production things that I noticed. You know, I really liked the green 
planet or the green sky of the planets and the the dual moons i thought they looked really strong uh as far as visual effects go and it was this interesting uh you know just new planet that seemed kind of fun to explore i just really like that there's one really great shot with uh, John Delancey uh, balanced with the two moons on the other side, so you know it felt like a nod to sci-fi that we know and love, of course, with uh, with Tatooine and the dual suns. But I really enjoyed uh, the visual look of that, and uh, we get to see someone else in Data's makeup for a little bit when the and Data and the contacts, and that was a striking moment. Like it felt mm-hmm. weird and, and strange, and I felt also really bad for John Delancey to have to go through that just for you know one half a day of shooting but it was uh you know definitely putting forth the 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 costumes of the french legionnaires and all that stuff was just done i thought very expertly and uh you know we were talking a lot about the the script and the plot and the themes and all what those mean but you know just as good television and good sci-fi this was a, a good episode in that regard absolutely kate what do you think uh, I legitimately gasped when he was data because I'd right? forgotten that that was going to happen. And they that actually was handled so well that I was like, oh, I forgot. <laughs> and it is just very stunning visually. Um, but, you know, like oftentimes we talk about uh, where we would place this. I give this episode like a like a six or a 6.5 um, because the performances, uh, especially John Delancey and, and Patrick Stewart just elevate the material um, to a, a, a new level in my mind um, because, you know, I, I'm just fascinated by Q and what they represent and the way those two square off. Um, I'm always going to be a fan of anytime they get to choose scenery together. Agreed. I could not agree more with that. And and this one is a kind of a great example of the, the, the mystery in a bottle Star Trek episode, right? There's a lot of stuff that they don't want us to know at the beginning that they will reveal to us throughout, uh, throughout. but they, they do it in kind of a very straightforward way because this is, you know, at its heart still a show for, you know, Sunday afternoons. Like it, it's still for young people at the end of the act break, they tell you the, the, moral that they want you to be thinking about going into commercials and then at the end of the episode they full-on tell you the moral of the episode (laughs) Uh, and this one does it straightforward honest about it and you know i as i'm getting older (laughs) and watching uh the the differences between uh star trek then and star trek now i'm so grateful that they don't spoon feed you all the moral stuff uh as much uh, these days, and yet the point of view is super clear. Um, uh, Tessa, our very special guest, uh, what are your uh, closing thoughts on this episode? Closing thoughts are really still all about Q, especially because he's such a, he's maybe my favorite recurring villain um, in Star Trek. And I love villains, especially complicated ones with relationships with the heroes, the way that Q has and develops a relationship. And I, when I think about this in the the scheme, the grand scheme of the show, and what I would do is um, if I was writing Q, then he definitely was faking his um, loss and punishment at the end, because I just don't think you can take anything he says and does at face value. And I think that's interesting to think about if he is already setting up his next encounter with them 
at the end of this episode and leaving the crew with the taste in their mouths that he wants to leave them with. So that's what that's I would brilliant. be doing you. Yeah, I love that. I love that's it. awesome, actually. Yeah. And it's very in keeping and again, topical for right now. It comes back four <laughs> years later with a, with a fundraising machine. Gross. Unrivaled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thank you so much, Tessa, for coming on and joining yes, us today. Thank you. Well, yeah. thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I'm glad uh, that you all made me think about this episode more. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna. I start started a rewatch a couple, maybe a year and a half ago, before Picard started, and we fizzled out in season two. And I think we'll probably just jump into season three now instead of trying to force our way into season two because this was really, really fun and interesting. So thanks. Absolutely. Any parting shots? We're good. We get our next, uh, you know, a recurring character in the next episode with Loaxana Troy. Oh, that's so yeah. exciting. I'm very excited for that. And, and her... Uh, manservant whose name yeah. I can never remember who yes. is lovely as well. Which we have to uh, my undergrad writing professor was uh, he, he was one of the show creators for My Two Dads and his biggest uh, disappointment he said in LA was he pitched to uh, TNG an episode in which they, the Enterprise comes upon a Jewish pleasure cruise uh, that they have to help. And then the, the ladies spend the whole episode trying to get Picard to marry one of their daughters. And it didn't work? They didn't buy it. I'd Shocked. watch it. That's shocking. <laughs> yeah. They didn't buy it. But there's, there's definitely uh, threads of that in the next episode. I, yeah. think, oh. I, I think Patrick Stewart would nail that now even better than he would have then. Should yeah. we talk about schedules for next week after we do our wrap? <laughs> yes, I think we have wrapped. I think we are. That's, that's I, it. It's I, over. I think it's over. I Apparently. Forgot. Yeah. No. There are there are credits that we'll I didn't hear in. anybody say wet pants, so <laughs> I didn't think it was over. Wet pants. Thanks for being with us on the bridge for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Instagram and Twitter at Re-Engage, capital T-N-G, to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun Star Trek shenanigans. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Insta. Eric Gratton, who is me, is at Eric Falls Down, that's Eric with a K, on Twitter and Insta. Jimmy G is of course at the Jimmy G on Insta. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Re-Engage is edited and mixed by the amazing Krista Curry at Krista from Glee on Twitter. Krista with a K. And Krista.Curry on Instagram. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo underscore 97 on Twitter or Mojo97.com. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you for listening. Standing by for the saucer section to re-engage. <laughs>